0: We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, if every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross. A heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley, And holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story.
1: Good morning, Cornwall. It's good to have you here, those of you here, those of you in Skagit, so glad that you're with us, and I know you're excited to have your uh, pastor with you again this morning, Uh, Pastor Brian, not me, uh, Pastor Brian back with you, those in Boca Raton, good to have you, as well as those watching online with the live stream. Uh, Big week for our family this week, Uh, just a couple days ago for the first time in my life, I became a great uncle, which I understand is like being a grandpa, but a whole lot cheaper, so I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm glad that you're here today. I'm glad that we get to continue on in this journey. We're in a 15-week series going through the book of Mark. Uh, with this concept of Jesus is a subject. We're covering a lot of things in the weekends, but I want to encourage you to keep reading through the book of Mark. And If you're like, oh, I haven't done that yet. Listen, this is week three, and we're just getting into to chapter two. So you can get caught up real quick, uh, and we're going to continue on for the next uh, several months up to Easter uh, looking through this book. You know, we saw two weeks ago that early on, Jesus kind of summarizes his message, his ministry, uh, his three years in this phrase in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I'm going to go out a little bit on a limb here, uh, a little bit of a quiz. Uh, I'll give you a little hint. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale. Does anyone remember the Greek word that's translated here, good news? Something about Gilligan, yeah, yeah. You and Gillian, you and Gillian. It says good news. It also is translated gospel. And that's what Jesus said. I'm telling you, what what, what I got here is good news. Good news. Notice this Jesus never ever uses fear as a motivator to get people into the kingdom of God. Is that different than some of the churches you were raised in? Jesus never used fear as getting people as, as the motivator. He says, repent. And believe this good news is you and Gilead. And remember we talked about when, when John says repent, he says stop doing something. When Jesus says repent, he says start doing something. When John the Baptist said repent, he said turn away. When Jesus says repent, he says turn toward It's not just a command to be obeyed, it was an invitation to be followed, an invitation to be received. Repent, turn towards something, come, and then he follows up with these words that Pastor Brian is speaking of Pastor Brian. Didn't he do a phenomenal job last weekend? Yeah, and Pastor Brian, I just gotta say the camera adds six inches. You look so tall. Man, that was fantastic. Thanks, but, but Brian brought this, the follow-up for this was Jesus had these words, come follow me, drop your nets, and adventure awaits. This is the kingdom of God, and it is good news. And it's an amazing thing, as Mark records these words, while Mark records them, Jesus never came to Mark and said, follow me. He was probably a bit younger. And as we've talked about, Mark being the author, most believing that he was the author, though the... the, the book never says that, it wasn't wasn't his experience that he's recording. Most believe that he's recording as the secretary or the translator for Simon Peter. And the first idea from this comes from an early church father just a few years after their life named uh, Papias who recorded that Mark was the secretary for Simon Peter. But there's some literary hints that we find in this book as well that would kind of tip the hand that maybe this is Simon Peter's recollection of what he experienced. One of them is that proportionately, Mark talks about Simon Peter more than any of the other gospel writers. It's like Marcia, 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 Simon, Simon, Simon. Peter, Peter, Peter. It just happens over and over again. And if you've been reading it, you remember maybe even in chapter one, like right away uh, in this, in this uh, time where, where Jesus says, come and, and, and repent. He says this, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, the very first disciple that's even mentioned in the book, is Simon, Simon, and his brother Andrew casting net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me. So right away, it's like Simon saying, "Yeah, yeah." Jesus came and talked to me. A few verses later, in verse twenty-nine, it says, "As soon as they left the synagogue in Capernaum, they went with James and John. Okay, we'll throw them a bone." To the home of Simon, there it is again. Simon and Andrew, his brother, and Simon's mother-in-law. And she was sick and Jesus healed him. And some believe that's why Peter would later deny Jesus. He healed his mother-in-law. But that's not true. So, But it's all about Simon and Simon's home and Simon's mother-in-law. And then later in verse 35, it says, Very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. And, verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. You will see this all the way through this gospel. It's so always talking about Simon, always talking about Peter, and in the book of Mark, nothing of significance is ever recorded except that Simon Peter is there. So this is most likely Simon Peter giving his, uh, his account of what he experienced. He was this you know, front row eyewitness account of his experiences three years with Jesus. Now today we're going to get into chapter two, and if you have your Bible or tablet or phone you want to turn there, Go ahead. As you're turning there, I want to remind you, kind of a re- repeat from, from last week. When Jesus starts this ministry, he goes up into Galilee, and he's doing incredible things. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. He's casting out demons, and he's preaching with incredible authority, and the people are just coming from everywhere. Um, in in uh, Mark chapter 1, it says, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. You may recall John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. That's happening. Remember, when we looked at this two weeks ago, that all these people were going out to see John the Baptist, now they're all following Jesus. Uh, And at the end of chapter one, it says, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. They're just flocking to him. There's something magnetic, there's something appealing, there's something compelling about Jesus, something so attractive about this one, that people would come, and, and some of it, granted. They wanted to see the sensational. They'd heard about some healings. They'd heard about some miracles. No doubt that that human nature, we want to see something crazy, something we've never seen before. But also his teaching, the things that he said. And there are these enormous crowds. Now, in in, uh, chapter 2, we see this again. He's back in Capernaum, which is in the northwest corner, right on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, like right on the shore. And there's all of these people. Mark chapter 2, verse 2 says this. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Two things to note about chapter two, verse two. One is, again, this mention of the crowds. This is something that Mark comes to again and again and again. Of the 16 chapters in Mark, all but two of the chapters reference the multitude, the crowd, the people. It's just like he always focuses on this. The second thing that's interesting is at least part of why they're coming to him is because he's teaching, he preached the word to them. Mark records that he preached, but he doesn't record what he preached. This is one of the distinctives of the of the gospel of Mark that in the gospel of Mark there seems to be this preference for action over words. Like There are more more time spent talking about miracles than about what Jesus taught. You contrast that with the other gospels. Matthew. I mean, he has the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount. These chapters that talk about this teaching of Jesus. In in Luke and John, there's these parables and these things where he explains things to the disciples. Not so in the book of Mark. A lot of action. A lot of activity. And this would make sense if, if he's recording what Peter remembers. Because some of you who are familiar with the New Testament know that Peter was like, you know, let's talk, more rock. Let's go. He's all action. Don't talk about it. Don't even think. Just do. That's kind of how he he was just this impetuous man. And so he's talking about all this activity. Another thing is that most believe that the book of Mark was written for the church in Rome. They lived in Rome. They didn't have as much of the the Jewish heritage and lineage. And they lived in Rome where there's this this world power of the day and all of this greatness, it would go to to, uh, reason that in Rome, to prove the identity of Jesus as the son of God, it would be a better route to come from his powerful actions versus his powerful words. Let's show, not tell. And so we see this over and over again. Now, the passage of scripture we're going to look at today has about three different scenes there's a lot of questions and some statements, a lot of encryption that's going on here. And what's interesting about this passage is that all three of the synoptic gospels record all of these events happening. Matthew does, Mark does, and Luke does. And it have them all recording this in sequence. There's a chance that these things happen back to back to back all on the same day. If they happened all on the same day, I'm almost positive it was either a Monday or a Thursday we'll get to that later. But we're going to see these interactions where there's this question questioning this kind of a, a volleying of questions going back and forth. All right, ready? Let's get into it. Mark chapter 2, verse 3 says this. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it lowered the mat The paralyzed man was lying on. Quick question. How many of you have ever read or heard this story ever in your life? The vast majority of you. If if you have not, this is is a great story. How many of you first heard this story in Sunday school in a church when you were growing up? Okay, still a majority here. How many of you heard this story with a flannel board in your Sunday school teacher or your children's church? Okay, yeah. All right, so many of us did that. What's interesting about this story... And it seems like we almost get fixated on the tearing open the roof piece. I mean, as a kid in Sunday school, when I taught this as a, as a volunteer in the youth group when I was in college, when I heard sermons, when I preached on it, all this talk about the rooftops being like a terrace and they're flat and the thatched roof and the mud and the terrace. Like, like, this is all about the roof and the hole in the roof. And I want to suggest that for those who are there that day, and especially a certain group, the roof was like a side footnote. It was like a detail. It was a minor detail. Like they walked out of going, roof, oh yeah, 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 there. We're all about, oh, that's the story about the roof being torn off. Like that's, like the roof is the subject. And I want to suggest that maybe that's not the case. So here we have this guy, and he doesn't have a name in this story. He's merely referred to as the paralytic. We don't know anything else except that he's known and identified by his brokenness speculation. He's at least a paraplegic, maybe a quadriplegic. Speculation, he may have had this condition his entire life. We don't know that, but if so, this is probably his reality, that his whole life he has only been known as, he's only been identified by his brokenness, by what he can't do, by his disability. And a little side note, Sometimes we find that we get our identity in our brokenness, in our past. This is who we are. This is what we've done. So our brokenness, our past, our afflictions, our mistakes, our sins, those things become our identity. This man is only known for his brokenness. Probably as a little boy, he's like, oh, there's the little crippled boy. Bless his heart. As a teenager, oh, there's the crippled young man. Oh, I feel so bad for him. As an adult, there's the crippled man. And if that's the case, as a kid, he never got to run, he never got to swim, he never got to walk up in the hills, he never got to do the hokey pokey, you can't put your right foot in if you can't move it. He didn't have your normal childhood. And then as he gets older, he is completely dependent on others, which does something to his own self-esteem and his pride and his ego. He's probably poor because he can't work, and he'll never get married because he can't support a wife or a family. On top of that, if if in the outside chance someone actually put him in a cart and took him to Jerusalem and he went to Jerusalem, he would not be allowed in the temple because of his condition. And on top of that, in that day, it was believed that his condition was a result of sin in somebody's life. Either he sinned, his parents sinned, and this is the wrathful God showing his judgment and his curse upon some sin. So he's growing up not able to go to the temple understanding that his whole identity is in his brokenness, and it's probably because he or his parents or someone sinned, and this is God's curse on him. That's his condition. That's what he has. And these four guys come. Here's a little one outside there. He's probably a local guy. Maybe these four guys, maybe, this is way out there, maybe these four guys are Peter, James, John, and Andrew, maybe friends that he grew up with. And maybe then. No, forget that. But that just a thought. So he comes, and they tear open the roof. And they let him down. And I always think what this must have been like. You know, he's not in charge of this, and he's coming down. You know, people are going, well, well, and he's like, what's up? You know, it's not me. You know, and, and all this stuff's going on. And as he's coming down, it's real obvious what's happening here. There's been rumors that this Jesus heals people like this. And here's Jesus And he's being put down right in front of Jesus. And so everyone kind of knows what's going on here and, 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 and what the need is and what they're hoping Jesus will do. Now, while it is true, follow me all the way through on this one. While it is true that we can and should bring everything in our life to Jesus, we should. We have to guard against the danger of reducing Jesus down to just being our vending machine. To just being our one man make a wish foundation. To just be in our, come and work on my kingdom, my will be done. Jesus, I need you to help me with my stuff. We're we're to bring everything to him. But if we reduce him to just our servant, to do our bidding, to do our will, to help us with our stuff, we've missed everything. I'm not suggesting that this is where this man is. However, in this moment, Jesus identifies this man's greatest needs and provides the greatest miracle. You can imagine the anticipation, the expectation. The roof's been torn out. The place is packed. Jesus is there. He's been teaching with authority. He's been healing. Here comes this man, the expectation of this young man, the expectation of his four friends, the expectation of all the people sitting around the room. And then Jesus does something that takes this story completely in a different direction, completely unexpected, not at all what we would think would happen. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, before we go into the disappointment of this statement, I want you to notice something. Jesus looks at this young man who has always only been identified by his brokenness, always only been known for what he can't do, always been excluded always been on the outside. And Jesus sees there's something more to this one than his brokenness. And he calls him son. Like a term of endearment and love. A term of value and belonging. Like you were never allowed in the temple, but you know what? You're allowed in my family. You've been excluded from everything else, but I'm including you. And I just want to say, when we get this idea that all we are is our past, our sins, our brokenness, our hangups, our habits, our addictions. Jesus says, You're more than your brokenness. You're my daughter. You're my son. And then he says, Son. And then this unexpected line Your, sons, your sins are forgiven. I can imagine the guy saying, Okay, thanks. Not really what I wanted, but don't want to be ungrateful can imagine the crowd going, oh, that was different. Bummer. We were hoping to see one of these things we've heard about. Four guys up in the roof going, oh, no, no, no. And they're all met with this disappointment like, no, no, that's not how the story's supposed to go. This one will never make it in the Bible if you don't do something cool here. Everyone's disappointed except for one group. There's a group there. That are not disappointed, they are shocked and enraged, incensed, livid, not because Jesus didn't heal them, but they're absolutely outraged. Because what Jesus just said, no one would ever say, no one could ever say, no one says those kind of things. And in verse six, it says if this was a cartoon, some bubbles pop up over their heads. Some things that they're thinking. And here's the issue. Jesus can read a bubble. <laughs> They've got these bubbles that pop up. Their thoughts are going on. And this is what they're thinking. Verse 7. Why does this fellow, this dude, this guy, everyone's so impressed with this guy. You just notice the, almost this demeaning. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? and they're absolutely right. They can't forgive sins. The priest can't forgive sins. Listen, I can't forgive sins. The pope can't forgive sins. You come to me, pastor, I've done all this. What? I absolve you of all your sins. I can't do that. I can point you to the one who will forgive your sins. I can point you to what the scripture says when we come and confess our sins, but I can't con- I cannot he- forgive your sins. They couldn't forgive your sins. And what makes this who does he think he is? That he can forgive sins? This is blasphemy. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the law. They knew Leviticus 24 says, you blaspheme, you stone that man. You take him outside of the town and you stone him. You kill him because he has taken on the role as God himself. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, you know what he's saying? He's saying that he can do what only God can do. Put it together. He's saying he's God and these guys are furious. Furious. I can imagine their faces getting red. They're being agitated and all of this. And all this is going on in these bubbles above their head. And Jesus reads the bubbles. And so he turns to them. And it's an interesting thing. He asks them a question. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Okay, without getting deep theological or trying to get the right answer, take about... Ten seconds, turn to someone you came with or sitting next to you. Tell them the answer to this question. Which one's easier? Go ahead right now. Don't worry about getting the wrong answer. You're not going to be graded on this. Go ahead right now. Say it. Which one is easier to say? What is easier to say? So you think about that. All right. So Jesus asked them this question. And you're going to see this going on all all throughout this this encounter today. Which is easier to say? Well, it's kind of hard to say. Which is easier to say? If you're just talking about verbal articulation, one of them has six syllables and one of them has seven. (laughs) But I don't think that's what he's getting at. But if you say, okay, which one's easier to say? Okay, just verbally, no big difference. But which one is easier to check and see if you actually followed through? Now, that's pretty clear. I mean, think about this. If I were today to say hypothetically, okay, just before we get going on this. Today's like Oprah Day. Because you came to church today, here and in Skagit, Boca, not online, sorry. But because you're here today, you're gonna walk away. Everyone gets a brand new car. Woo! Oprah Day, alright. And if I said, oh, but that's not it, it gets even better. Because you're here today, I have personally created for each of you your own galaxy on the far side of the universe. It's yours. Now, which one of those is easier to check on if I actually did it? It's real obvious. The galaxy, you may never know if that's true or not. The car, you go outside the door and you'll see, where's my car? So in that case, it's easier to say the galaxy because I don't have to prove anything. And maybe it would be, in that case, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven because how do you know if they are or not? But you will know if he gets up and walks. So maybe the answer is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven But it's not just saying, but actually doing which one is going to be easier to perform if you could. Well, maybe to heal someone, there's probably other miracle workers and healers, but to forgive sins is going to cost everything. And maybe Jesus would say, in that sense, my efforts, it's going to be a lot easier to say, you're healed. Then you're forgiven because to forgive you is going to cost my life. And then on top of that, this question is almost unanswerable for these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, because these two things are inextricably combined. They believe that the reason he's crippled is because there's sin in his life. And if he was forgiven, then he wouldn't be crippled. And if he was healed, then he would have been forgiven. You can't have one without the other. It's like an impossible deal. And they know they can't do either. No one can do either. This is blasphemy. Only God can do it. And it's only blasphemy if you're not God. And so they're thinking, you you can't do either of these. They they go together. You remember Psalm 103, verses 1 through 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your, forgives all your sins, and heals all your diseases. They put them together all the time. And here Jesus is saying, answer me, which one is it? And they don't answer him. They don't give him an answer to this question. You know, it's interesting Is what he does. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. If you thought they were upset because he said, son, your sins are forgiven, it just exponentially multiplied. He uses this title, Son of Man. Notice it's capitalized. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He'll use it 14 times in the book of Mark. Son of Man... He identifies with us as one of the humans, get that. But there's a secondary meaning on this. It's found in in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel has a vision of this one who comes, this messianic vision. And he says, and he looks like a son of man. And this son of man has authority, glory, and sovereign power. They're familiar with this scripture. And Jesus is talking about this son of man, this messianic figure And is he talking about himself, now he says that he can forgive sins. He's saying that he's the fulfillment of Daniel 7, that he is the Messiah that's come, and that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. What is interesting is right now, early on in Jesus' ministry, he begins to pull the curtain back a little bit, and Jesus reveals a little bit of his identity. He shows him that he's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a healer. He's not just a teacher but that he is the Messiah. Yes, he is God himself. And as he begins to reveal his identity, he takes the first step down that long road to the cross. So he gets to this point where he asks him this question. He's saying that he's the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And then it's kind of like, put up or shut up. Put your money where your mouth is. Back to verse 10 and 11 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Can you imagine the tension in that room right there? Everyone in there, and it's standing room only. They're all looking at Jesus. The teachers of the law. The paralytic. Paralytic looks up at Jesus. What's gonna happen? And this is the moment. He's just spoken this unimaginable, unbelievable thing that he can forgive sins, and now he's telling, this is what we were waiting for. And it says the paralytic got up, maybe for the first time in his life, in full view it says of everyone, and walks out, hashtag mic drop. (laughs) And everyone is rejoicing and praising God except one group. How sad is it that they are in the very presence of the one that they think they represent? They're in the very presence of God, the Messiah, the Son of Man, and they miss it completely. And instead of praising God, they start scheming right now of how are we going to get rid of this man? How are we going to kill him? Now, I think that moment right there, you could imagine they're with all kinds of disequilibrium in their world, their thinking, their theology. Jesus said the unbelievable and he followed it up with the impossible. He can't forgive sins, but he can't be healed unless the sins are forgiven and it just happened. What do we do with that? And I think that kind of ends the church service. I mean, the guy's walking out, he's like, let's go. Look at these. And away he goes. And everyone's like, and Jesus probably saying, hey, you know what, let's take a break. I'll get a breath of fresh air. Now, this may have been later, but maybe they just walk out. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake because Capernaum, I mean, is like right on the shore. You can take a rock literally from where Capernaum is and hit the lake, hit the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So he's out by the lake now, he's teaching, large crowds, comes up to this guy, Levi. Levi is a Hebrew name. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, one of the tribes of Israel, Levitical tribe. He's got a Hebrew name, Levi. He's probably a local man, otherwise the whole tagline of the son of Alphaeus wouldn't matter to anybody. If you do that locally, you say, oh, we know Alphaeus, we know, that's kind of the validity there. He is also a tax collector. Those of us raised in church know this is where we go, boo, you know black hats, whatever. These are the bad guys. There was a, an ancient Greek author uh, from the first century who defined tax gatherers in the category with adulterers, panderers, and sycophants. I'm like, I read that, I'm like, no way. Sycophants? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but they're sickos. They're sycophants. <laughs> and and, and this, this is what the reputation that they had. By the way, one definition of sycophant is a, um, is a, a fawning parasite. It's kind of nice. Now, don't call your kids or your spouse this, these words, or your boss, or your pastor. But that's how they were categorized this way. So here's this local guy, and chances are that, you know, Peter, James, and John, Andrew, they had been taxed by this guy. Their fishing business. They had to pay this guy. They don't like, no one likes, I mean, let's, let's be honest, all due respect to you if you work for the IRS, none of us, even on the best day, none of us get excited about paying taxes. I mean, we like the benefits of it, but no one likes to pay taxes. But then when you have corruption in, in some sycophant that's collecting them, it makes it even worse. And Jesus' disciples probably know Levi really well and don't like him at all. And Jesus comes up to this sycophant and he says, Repent. In essence, because when Jesus says repent, he says turn toward, turn toward. Jesus says to him, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Levi, we better know him as Matthew. Levi is his Hebrew name. Matthew, who became one of the 12 disciples, is his Greek name. And I can imagine the disciples are going, no, Jesus, no, not him. We don't like him. Keep him out of our group. Jesus says, come on. As they're walking along, Levi's following them. This kind of is implied that later that night, they show up at Levi's house. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, now there's many sycophants that show up. (laughs) Many tax collectors. And in quotes, which is kind of an interesting thing, it'd be a good discussion. In quotes, sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now there's this huge gathering. Last time there was a huge gathering, Jesus is teaching. Now they're in with Levi and the sycophants and the, all the, the sinners who weren't in there, the ones who don't observe the law, the ones who don't go to the temple, the ones who are classified in these outcasts spiritually, they're in this house having a big party. Now I think that the disciples are probably going, why, why are we here? I mean, this is a local group. These are, these are the people they grew up with and they know who they are. These were the little guys that when they went to synagogue school and their mom gave them money for the offering, they pocketed and bought candy later. These are the kids that ended up in the principal's office all the time. These are the ones that they were not allowed to go to the sleepovers at their house. These are the ones who, after school, walked across the street to the sycamore trees and smoked the olive leaves. These are those kids... They're the ones that have the parties. They're the ones with the reputation. They're the ones who have the loose girlfriends. They're the loose girlfriends. They're they're all these people. They're these outcasts. And Jesus' disciples are going, we've been warned about these guys. We were beat up by these guys. We weren't allowed to associate. And now they're having dinner with them. And I think the disciples are as as much in in just like a quandary as, as everybody else. And what's interesting is while this happens... The teachers of the law again, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, and they asked his disciples. See, last time they just thought it, figured out Jesus reads the bubbles. Let's just forget that thing. Let's just go ahead and ask. But let's ask the disciples, not Jesus himself. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? They're not seeking to understand. They're not looking for information. This is a condemnation in the form of a question. And again, we see that Jesus pulls back the curtain and reveals his identity a little bit more, and it's Jesus, the physician. Now, keep in mind that he's just healed the paralytic. He just healed the man who was paralyzed. And now he uses this imagery to talk about something beyond just physical healing, that maybe there's a sickness that's even greater than being paralyzed. And he reveals this to them. And so, again, he throws this, this question, this statement out that's a little bit encrypted. It says this. On hearing this, hearing what they're asking his disciples, because they're probably asking loud enough for Jesus over here. Jesus said to them, is it not the healthy who need a doctor, uh, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And they're like, okay, wait, what, what are you even talking about? I mean, we're, we're talking about this party you're eating, and now you're talking about doctors and patients and stuff. And I wonder if Jesus just kind of let that, think about it for a second. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. And light bulbs start going on. It's like, oh, okay, so you're saying these people you're eating with, Pharisees are thinking, okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah, and we agree with you for once. We agree with you, Jesus. They are sick. We don't like the fact that you're eating with them, but we get that. And maybe Levi and his friends are going, hey, wait a second. (laughs) You're you're talking about us. So we're kind of sick. And Jesus is like, dude, you're a sycophant. <laughs> and I wonder if Jesus is not talking about Levi and his friends at all. That what Jesus has in mind is that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are the ones who have the greatest sickness in the whole room. And Jesus says, let me tell you why I came. I have not come to call the righteous... But sinners, like anyone who recognize their need, blessed are the poor in spirit. I can't do this on my own. And so if Levi and his friends recognize that, that's who I'm here for. And maybe what he's saying is, Pharisees, teachers of the law, you don't even see it, do you? You have a cancer of self-righteousness that is destroying you from the inside. Your life is filled with tumors of judgment. You have a fatal heart condition. And the whole time you don't see it because your eyes are blinded by your pride. Do you not realize? The kingdom of God is not for the good. It's not for the discipline. It's not for the moral. It's for the one humble enough to say, I can't do this on my own. I need someone besides myself. Now, I said that if all this happened on one day, I believe it was on a Monday or a Thursday. And here's why I say this. Next verse said this. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. means they're not eating. Some people came and asked Jesus, some people now, now I think they're saying, the bubbles don't work. Talking to his disciples, let's send someone else to do our dirty work. How is it that John, this is John the Baptist, John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Here's the background on this. Israel had a mandatory fasting day on the Day of Atonement. Everyone was to fast. No eating on the Day of Atonement. But there were other seasons where there was optional fast, and there were some that had taken on this this task of this spiritual discipline of fasting twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, usually from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., Maybe you remember the prayer of the self-justified Pharisee when he's at the temple praying, God, thank you that I'm not like this sinner, you know, I I tithe and I fast twice a week. But for most of them, this was no longer a spiritual discipline of really humbling themselves before God. Now it had become an outward display of their own spirituality and their pride. That's why Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 6. When you fast, don't do it for everyone else to see. So the disciples of John the Baptist, who were very strict in their adherence of things, and the Pharisees, who were very legalistic, they're fasting, and they're probably fasting on this day, which would have made it either a Monday or a Thursday, and they're all saying, we're so hungry, and Jesus' disciples are going, we're so full, and they're saying, so they're fasting, but you're not, like, they're spiritual and you're not. Why why is that? I mean, what, what gives on that whole thing? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's still with them? they're going, oh, here we go again. Bridegroom, we're not even talking about a wedding. This isn't even a wedding, Jesus. You don't even have a girlfriend. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. They're going, oh, he always makes us scratch our head and think, what does this even mean? And Jesus, again, pulls back the curtain and identifies who he is, Jesus, the bridegroom. Notice it's not Jesus, the grim reaper, it's not Jesus the funeral director. It's not Jesus the enforcer. Jesus the bouncer. Jesus the bad newser. It's Jesus, this one, who says, this is like a wedding. I'm like, I, I love these people. They're like my bride. This is a kingdom of joy, good news. And maybe, just maybe, the Pharisees see a truth that underlies that that just caused them to take their anger even to the next level. All throughout the Old Testament, the relationship with God and his people was spoken of in like marriage terms, like this covenant that they were in, like a husband and wife, all that. And there's this place in Isaiah where we read these words. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And maybe the Pharisees are saying, wait a second. He's already claiming that he can forgive sins. He calls himself the son of man. I think he's relating himself to the bridegroom, which means, again, he's saying he's God. This would cause them, again, another step down this path to his death as they pick up on this. But Jesus says, yeah, like a groom that's rejoicing on his wedding day, that's the kingdom. And a groom that loves his bride and wants to spend the rest of his life, that's me with these people. And he knows it will lead him to the cross. In fact, he says, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, the crucifixion. On that day they will fast. He knows where this is going to lead. He knows the outcome. But he begins to tip his hand. He begins to show a little bit of who he is. Now, I want us to to stop there. That's verse 20. We stop there. And I want us to look at this situation because there's all these questions. You know, why, why, why? Jesus from the religious leaders. In the first scenario, we have a man who is completely broken physically and spiritually. And there is no way. There is no way that he can fix himself spiritually. There's no way he can heal himself physically. There's no way. I mean, this is it. His identity is in his brokenness, and there's no way for him to change that at all. In the second scenario, we have Levi and his friends, and they've all bought into the lie that their identity is in their success. It's in this life outside of the the, the temple, outside of the law, outside of God's kingdom. They bought this lie that it's all about getting more money, being successful, having a party, all these friends. It's just this great thing. And they bought into that lie. And then there's this group of teachers and Pharisees who have taken what is supposed to be a life-filled, life-giving relationship with God, and they've reduced it down to this dead, dead religion. The broken man who has no way out of this, Levi and his friends who believe the lie that their identity is in their success, and these religious leaders whose identity is in their own self-righteousness, but they've killed the very life. In one respect, they're all different. They're diametrically, maybe we should say trimetrically opposed to one another. But they all have the exact same need. They all need to repent and believe the good news. They all need to take what Jesus said in Mark 1:15. Repent, turn toward, and believe the good news. Because for the broken man who has no way to change anything in his life, Jesus says, I am the way. And for Levi and his friends who have believed the lie that their identity is in their success, he says, don't believe that lie. I am the truth. And for these Pharisees who have destroyed and killed religion and just serving in this, this dead religion, he said, I am the life. That I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what you need. I've come to forgive, to fulfill, and to free you. You all have the exact same Your life situation is completely different. But you all have the same need, and that need is Jesus. Now let's bring it down to us. And I wonder, of these three... Is there one that you identify with? You're just believing that you are your brokenness. You've got a mess. You've got sins. You've got regrets. You've got habits. You've got hang-ups. You've got addictions. You've got all this stuff. And that's just your identity. You need Jesus. If you bought into this lie that it's all about success, about having wealth, about having money, about you know, accumulating all this stuff, you bought that lie that that's what it's really all about, you need the truth of Jesus. If you got to this point where you're just so self-righteous and you, your identity is all what you do and what you don't do and how spiritual you think you are and, and you've just you've killed the relationship with God, you, you need Jesus. See, no matter where we are, all of us, because maybe you can identify with one of these, for every single one of us, no matter where we are, our greatest and deepest need that we have, our deepest longing is fulfilled in Jesus. Not just by Jesus. In Jesus. Your brokenness, you're more than your brokenness. Your identity is in Christ. You are way more. There's more to life and more to who you are than your success. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is not in your own self-righteousness. It's in Christ. He alone fulfill he alone is the subject what a great thing that Jesus says to every single one of us no matter where we are repent like turn toward repent and turn toward follow me come to this good news this this time of healing and wholeness this fulfillment this party the good news of the gospel So here's a challenge, maybe today, later today, or sometime this week, to spend some time thinking, do you identify, or which one of these guys or groups do you identify with the most? And if so, recognizing Jesus is my fulfillment. He's the subject.